All right. Can everyone hear me? Can everyone hear me all right? Good. So welcome again to this evening. Again, my name is Della Duncan, and I'm going to be speaking about the movement of gross national happiness from the kingdom of Bhutan. And uh, first, I wanted to share just how I came to uh, being part of the movement of gross national happiness. I grew up in San Francisco, um, and growing up was touched by a lot of issues that relating to economics, such as inequality or homelessness, gentrification, also issues of uh, different work and different uh, jobs being valued in different ways by the economy. And I kind of thought about this and, and why was this? What was wrong with our current economic system? And I uh, was also getting involved with Buddhism, practicing at Spirit Rock, um, getting familiar with the work of Joanna Macy. Um, and I started to think about what, what, would, what would Buddhism and economics look like? What is Buddhist economics? And I heard this, this really great quote from a man named Stephen Goodman who said that Buddhist economics is a system that works to identify suffering or alleviate suffering. Identify suffering or alleviate suffering, a system. So I've been kind of on a, on a search or a journey for places and people who are working to do this type of work, who are, who are operating their economies in different ways. And that led me to uh, the Kingdom of Bhutan and to the, to the movement for gross national happiness. So what is Bhutan? Where is Bhutan? So Bhutan is a landlocked country uh, between China and India. And only about 800,000 people. So very, very small country. Very, very small country. Um, it's a majority Buddhist country, and it also was largely closed to the world in terms of trade and in terms of economics, uh, the market. It wasn't on the global market um, until about the 1970s. So it was a very closed country until about the 1970s. And so that dynamic created a very specific history that um, that really has led the Buddhist values to be a very critical part of the economy and the culture there. And so there was a, there was a young king named Jingmi Singi Wangchuk, and he, his father died when he was 17 years old. So he became king at age 17. And he didn't know what to do with being the king of this country, so he decided to go on a pilgrimage. So he went for a walk on a pilgrimage uh, all around the country. And he asked people there, he said, what do you want from me as your leader? I am your king. Tell me, how can I serve you? And he thought maybe people would say things like, we want jobs or roads or things like that. But he found time and time again that what the people wanted was to be happy. And so as a young king, he internalized that and really brought that as kind of his role as the, the holder of this country, happiness, to bring, pe bring happiness to the people. And actually, this idea uh, goes back in Bhutan's legal code and 
from 1629 so that kind of this kind of idea, this theme has been with the legacy and the history of Bhutan for much longer than uh, the recent century. And the the actual birth of the term or the phrase "gross national happiness" came when the king uh, Jingmi, sorry Jingmi Singyi Wingchuk was at an airport and he was being. He, he was talking about how happiness was his main goal and how that's what he was trying to do for his people. And a journalist said to him, okay, that's great, but you know, what is the gross domestic product or the gross national product for, for Bhutan anyway? Kind of like, why does it even matter you know, what, what you're doing or what your ideals are? and was trying to really put him down. And he said, well, that's not important to me. Gross national product or gross domestic product isn't important. What's important to me is gross national happiness. And that was kind of the birth of this idea. And um, maybe many of you are familiar with the problems of gross domestic product or gross national product, but this idea of gross domestic product is really seen as the goal of a lot of our national economies, this kind of growth of this number, this number that's very value-free. I remember I was once knitting, and my brother looked over and said to me, uh, Della, why are you knitting? You know that's bad for the economy. And in a lot of ways, it's true that me making my own scarf was worse for the economy than going out and buying a scarf that was made in some other country and flown and all of that. But gross domestic product, which is kind of this number for success or this goal of economic systems, really doesn't look at things like, is the growth fair? Or is the growth sustainable? Or is the growth improving our lives? So there's, there's many folks and there's many movements that are kind of challenging or thinking differently about gross domestic product, but the gross national happiness movement from, uh, from Bhutan is one of the main ones. And so this idea of looking at gross national happiness as the main goal of the economy was kind of birthed in that moment with that journalist. And then all of the work to describe what that means and what that actually looks like in practice came after that. So it came after that statement. And of course, because it is a Buddhist country, uh, it's a particular type of happiness. It's a, it's a Buddhist concept of happiness. So it's a particular type of happiness, and then it's that happiness is put as the center goal of the economy. So I want to just pause there, because I think it would be an interesting question for those of you in the audience this evening to explore what is happiness to you? 
And what would it mean to put your view or your ideal of happiness as the goal of the economy? So before I go into what they discovered or figured out or how they've worked that out in Bhutan, I would just love that we do a little pair share. So if we just turn to the person next to you for a few moments and just share, if you'd like to, if you'd like to remain in silence, you may, but if you'd like to share, maybe introduce yourself and then just a little bit about what, what comes to mind when you think of happiness? What is happiness to you? What's your definition? And then what would that mean if that was kind of the center of an economy? Just what comes to mind? Just a few minutes each, just to get ourselves starting to think about this idea. And I'll give you three minutes and I'll ring the bell to switch. So go ahead and explore this idea. And go ahead and switch if you haven't yet. Go ahead and switch so that both people get a chance to share. Go ahead and switch if you haven't yet. One more minute. One more minute. One more minute. So thank you for diving into that question. Just wanted to, to get us all thinking about the same thing for a moment. And I'm wondering, would you mind with the... We just, if there's anyone who'd like to share just what came up in your conversation, just a few words either of what came up for you when you thought of your own definition of happiness or something you shared with your, with your partner, just anything that you'd want to share for the good of the group. Um, so yeah, being present, uh, but also alignment, being aware of your feelings and being able to express them, um, choosing to do things, not having to do them, uh, choosing what you have in your life. Uh, yeah, that's it. Thank you. I'm Linda. My partner and I agreed that kind of the simple life appeals to us. Um, having connection with nature and the earth, having healthy food and getting exercise, getting air, relating to different species. Um, we both agreed on that. Thank you. One more person. One more person want to share? So uh, what we came up with was um, both wanting to live with more ease ourselves and, um, and then wanting to see that extended to others and wanting to live in a, a world or a society where there was, I think, like a majority of people, <laughs> met, or at least many, many more people were oriented toward um, creating 
circumstances, yet well, creating compassion, loving kindness, um, caring, and improving lives for everyone. Ending capitalism. Okay. Great. Thank you all. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the questions I just want to drop in through the whole evening and the whole talk is, yeah, what what would it look like if, if we, let's say the Bay Area, wanted to go through a process of discovering what is happiness to each of us and what is our shared sense of happiness and then what would it look like if that shared sense of happiness was the goal of our local economy? You know, I think that's kind of a, a question to kind of weave throughout. And that's really what they asked in Bhutan. They really said, okay, so as he went on the pilgrimage and he kept hearing from people that happiness was what was important to them, you know, he said, well, how do I, how do, I do this? How do I change the goal of the economy as it opened in the 70s, you know, and came on to the, to the market and GDP as this measurement of success was kind of foisted upon it. And, and he said, no, 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 it's GNH, gross national happiness, that's important. And then they said, well, so how do you do that? And so the definition of happiness um, from Bhutan uh, that really stands out to me is from the former prime minister of Bhutan named Jingmi Thinli. And he said, we know that true abiding happiness cannot exist while others suffer. We know that true abiding happiness cannot exist while others suffer and comes only from serving others, living in harmony with nature, and realizing our innate wisdom and the true and brilliant nature of our own minds. One more time, from the former Prime Minister Bhutan, Jingmei Tinli. We know that true abiding happiness cannot exist while others suffer and comes only from serving others, living in harmony with nature, and realizing our innate wisdom and the true and brilliant nature of our own minds. I think I think I heard that in in the the three people who shared. I heard a lot of that as well. And so, one way there's been there's been so much wonderful writing and research on happiness. And one another way to describe this uh, this type of happiness that Bhutan really has ascribed to is the difference between hedonia and eudaimonia. Uh, so hedonia, um, hedonic happiness from hedonia. Uh, comes from the Greek hedon, meaning pleasure. So it's more like a pleasure, pleasurable happiness, a moment-to-moment happiness, a kind of the enjoyment or satisfaction, the absence of distress, the absence of distress. So that kind of hedonic happiness is maybe like a really delicious meal or a good massage or a bike ride at sunset. Whereas then there's a eudaimonic happiness from eudonia, which is much more connected with virtue, and really comes from happiness from serving others. So it's this more purpose-filled uh, sense of happiness. And so the kind of the Buddhist and the Bhutanese sense of happiness is much more this serving others, living in harmony with nature, realizing the, the, you know, the true and brilliant nature of our own minds. 
So it's this, it's this, it's, it's important to know the specific qualities of the happiness that, that they speak of in Bhutan. The other thing uh, to point out is, um, and I like to think about this a lot, the difference between personal happiness and systemic happiness, because although, um, you know, I feel that Buddhism, at least for me, Buddhist practices can bring a lot of joy and contentment in the moment to moment experience. Um, there's also systems that can create ease or dis-ease or happiness or unhappiness. So to see uh, this kind of gross national happiness is both an individual cultivation of happiness, but also the systemic happiness. And what does that mean? What does it mean to create a system that works to, as Stephen Goodman said, identify or alleviate suffering or to bring happiness? And the Bhutanese also, uh, the sense of happiness, uh, the way that they ended up defining it was using something called the four pillars and the nine domains. So they kind of, uh, they, they really, after, after the king came up with this idea of gross national happiness, really put a call out of all around the world, like people come and help us figure this out. How could we do this? And what could it mean? So they engaged in a really deep process of discovering and then of practice. And one thing they created were these kind of this description through these domains. So I'll tell you about them so that you get a sense of this really holistic sense of happiness, that it really is not simply a personal, psychological, well-being sense of happiness. You know, are you happy, yes or no? So the gross national happiness... Uh, defined by these nine domains, includes psychological well-being. So it does include, are you personally happy? It also includes your standard of living. So your, you know, the areas of the standard of living for you. Also, good governance. So do you feel represented? Do you feel like there's adequate, you know, democratic structures? Do you feel that your voice is heard? Do you feel you can participate? Um, health that health is a part of happiness, so your, your physical health, your mental health, your emotional health, uh, education, your ability to, to, to receive education, the quality of that education, right, that that's a part of happiness, community vitality, so how interconnected are you with your own community, how much belonging do you feel, also cultural diversity and resilience, so how connected are you to the history and the culture where you are, again, that sense of belonging, that sense of tradition. And then also time use. So time use is one of the nine domains, so that being a part of happiness. So how do you spend your time? Um, you know, what's the quality of your time? And then the last one is the ecological diversity and resilience as well, that that is a key part of our happiness is whether we see a polluted river or a clean river, whether the air is polluted or not, whether the tree is happy or, you know, or dead or, you know, all of that, whether there's trash on the ground, um, and whether it's a thri thriving ecosystems around us or not. So that's kind of the, a little bit more into the description of gross national happiness, what that happiness part means. So what is it? So I've been talking about gross national happiness. What is it? I would say it's four things. 
Number one, it's a, and, and a lot of people assume it's just simply an alternative measurement tool or just simply another index, like an alternative to gross domestic product, but it's not. It's actually much more than that. So first and foremost, I would say that it's a development philosophy or strategy, that it's a new way of conceiving the goal of our economies. It's a new economic paradigm a new development paradigm, a new, a new direction to go in. So not just blind growth, but actually happiness, meaning for happiness for people and for the planet and for all, all living beings. I would say that, so number one, it's a development philosophy and strategy. Number two, it is a measurement tool. And this this is where they really got a lot of support in Bhutan for how to measure happiness. How do you do that? Because gross domestic product, the exchange of goods and services, is actually quite easy because it's a monetary value to measure. But how do you measure happiness, right? So, so one, of the, one of the quotes that I love about this comes from a man named Dr. Havan To, who was the former program director of the Gross National Happiness Center. And he said... You are attentive to what you measure. You are attentive to what you measure. So, you know, if we measure gross domestic product or if we measured profit and that, that single number was our, was our focus, then that's what we try to achieve or try to strive for. But if we look at happiness and we start to unpick happiness, we start to measure happiness, then that's what we're going for. That's what we start to reorient towards. So... The, the measurement tool is done as a survey. It's done um, individually. So there's a group of people who get to go around the country and meet people and ask them the questions. And then there's also paper and electronic surveys as well. And the questions are all available online, and they're just they're really beautiful and diverse. But I'll share a few of them. So on the survey that, that people take, there is a question of how happy are you? So how happy are you from, you know, maybe one to 10 rate it. But then there's also how happy are those people in your family? So it's kind of a 360 analysis of your happiness as a person. But also um, there's this question of if you were unwell, if you were sick, how many people could you count on to help you? If you were unwell or sick, how many people could you count on to help you? That that is a way of looking at someone's happiness. There's also a question of if you had financial difficulty, how many people could you call on to help you in terms of a financial difficulty? And there's also the question, if you had a life celebration, a birthday, a retirement party, a birth, how many people would come and help you celebrate in your life? I think for me, that just those questions there and that shift that comes with happiness, just imagine if that's what we were working towards is that kind of greater community vitality and cohesion that means more and more people would be there for you and you for them, right? There's also questions about your time use. So as I said, so how much sleep do you get? How much time, how much do you work? Um, how, many, how many hours a week do you meditate? That's actually a question. Um, on the survey. There's also questions about um, indigenous knowledge. So do you, do you speak the traditional languages of the area? Um, how many of the native plants 
or trees do you know? Could you name? Um, also, do you practice the traditional uh, arts and crafts or sports? So, how in touch with you are you? How in touch with are you with the indigenous knowledge and literacy? Um, and then, my favorite question from the survey, from the Gross National Happiness Survey, is: Do you believe that trees are sacred? Do you believe that trees are sacred? And so what they do is they, they have this, this measurement tool that goes through those nine domains that I mentioned, and then they, they get to calculate all of that. And then they can identify where people are in terms of happiness, especially according to these nine domains. So they could potentially see that women are not as happy in their cultural diversity and resilience area but maybe in terms of time use, they're, they're much happier. Or people in rural areas are not as happy in terms of living standards, but they're very, you know, very happy in another area. And then that way they can target their policies, their projects, their programs to increase the happiness in different areas in different domains. So they could potentially look at how can we increase you know, women's time use happiness, right? The other interesting thing about the, the happiness is that there's a sufficiency level. So they're not trying to go for 100% happiness, that, that we're all going to be 100% in every domain all the time, but that there's a sufficient level of happiness in each area. So there's the measurement tool. And then there's, so it's a development philosophy, it's a measurement tool, it's also a policy screening tool. So it's a way that policies are actually decided upon. So uh, what they do is they have a gross national happiness commission, and they use these, uh, these domains uh, to make decisions through. So they'll, they'll have a decision and they'll run it through the domains to see whether it's a good idea or not. So, for example, if we were deciding to build a road, we might run it through the nine domains and we might say, yes, it would help in terms of living standards, but, oh, wait, it would go through a, you know, a, an endangered species bat corridor, so maybe we shouldn't build the road. Or what would it do to our, use of, our time use? Or what would it do to our cultural resiliency? And you might actually decide not to build that road, for example. And the, the classic example of this is that Bhutan decided not to join the World Trade Organization. They are not a member of the World Trade Organization. And how this happened was that the decision makers got together and before doing the, the survey tool, the policy screening tool, they all decided, yes, of course we should join the World Trade Organization. Every nation does. But once they ran it through this policy screening tool, they found, oh, wait, this might not be so good for our ecological diversity and resilience. Oh wait, this might not be so good for our cultural preservation and you know resilience. So they actually decided not to join it. So it's it's not just an idea, but there's very consequential practices that have actually led them to very different decisions. And just imagine, like again for a moment, as we think about happiness and 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 the Bay Area, what what would it mean if we if we considered these nine domains in our decision making? What would it mean in our, in our businesses, our organizations? What would it mean at our local government level, right? If, if we had to run it through these nine domains before building a project or making a program or, or doing something. 
And lastly, gross national happiness. So it's the development philosophy, the measurement tool, the policy screening tool. And lastly, it's a, it's a practice or a process of inner transition as well. And I think this is one of the beautiful things about it coming from the Buddhist tradition is that it has an element of the inner transition as well. And this, this, is the, this comes from the idea that our, political, our politics and our economics are mind-made. They're made by the human mind. And they can be made differently by the human mind. So what is it about our ways of thinking? What is it about our paradigms or our worldviews that need to shift so that we can create economic systems or political systems that do put happiness for, the pe- for people in the planet um, at the center? So it's the ways that they're doing that are practicing mindfulness and compassion practices in schools. So they're doing mindfulness and pra- compassion practices in schools, in the government, um, also in organizations and businesses. So, so bringing in that quality of inner transition as well. So what, what, is this, what does this look like in Bhutan? So this country, Bhutan, you know, since, since the 70s having been opened up, um, you know, gross national happiness being relatively new but gaining a lot of popularity. So what does this mean? Well, just a few things about it. One, uh, one thing that, that struck me when I went to Bhutan was uh, they have several days without vehicles. So a couple, several days of the week where no cars. That was a, a decision that came from this. Also, that the majority of the food there is organic, just right off um, organic food. That there's um, much more intact gift practices, gift economy practices in local villages and local economies. So, uh, you know, if there's a young couple that just got married and they need a home, that the community or the village would come together and help to build them a home. So these kind of operating outside of the market and helping one another. If a village has a problem with their water distribution system, that they get together and they fix it. So not everything is monetized. Not everything is commodified. So that's what I mean by um, healthy and intact uh, gift economies. Also, in the constitution of Bhutan, uh, there is a uh, stipulation that 60% of the country must remain under forest cover. 60% of the country must remain under forest cover. This is in the Constitution. And what's so fascinating is that, well, one one thing is that currently the country is 72% under forest cover. So they're they're even, they're allowing for some, you know, traditional development and deforestation. Um, And at the same time, they have a dedication to being carbon neutral um, and actually... I believe they still are, or at least they were, um, actually carbon negative. So that means, um, you know, the trees sequestering more carbon than the country emits. They have universal health care and education. Um, and they also, uh, one thing that's really striking is the strength of the cultural diversity and resilience. So the traditional costumes are worn very frequently. The, the male dress is called the go uh, female dress is called the Kira, and they're they're very common and and found throughout. There's a great celebration of culture. Um, and the reason why I became a, a 
a master trainer in gross national happiness was actually because there became so much international interest in Bhutan. So there was so much interest in what is what's going on in Bhutan, what is gross national happiness, and so more and more people would uh, visit and would want to learn about it and would travel to it, and so they, they decided they they needed to create kind of positions of ambassadors for people to go and help um, help projects flourish and people learn about gross national happiness without having to actually go to the country. And also so that folks in the country can focus on cultivating gross national happiness there themselves. And so this kind of idea of uh, gross national happiness spreading all over the world is, is, is quite prominent. And, uh, and there's actually there's a few great examples. So Eileen Fisher, the clothing brand, Eileen Fisher. Eileen actually went to Bhutan, um, and she studied gross national happiness, and she's implemented some gross national happiness practices, uh, some of the things that I mentioned, measurement tool, policy screening tool, uh, inner transition skills into her business. There's also another huge company called Be Grim in Thailand that has also implemented gross national happiness at, at a business level. There's a few schools, uh, most notably Mount Allison University in Canada um, has implemented a, a university-wide measurement tool to measure happiness um, to then be able to uh, direct the goal of their educational programs both in and out of the classroom towards this idea of happiness, this holistic idea of happiness. Um, there's a few local governments um, around the world that have also uh, implemented similar measurement tools or policy screening tools. Um, and actually, there's a group in Switzerland that's trying to bring uh, gross national happiness onto their uh, national referendum um, ballot. So that's a space to look for is a group of people. There's gross national happiness Sweden. There's gross national happiness Europe. So it's really, it's really spreading all over. Um, and also gross national happiness is the movement, this kind of beyond gross domestic product movement, um, has really also uh, been taken and put into specific contexts in other places um, as well. So that it, it can kind of morph and change and it doesn't have to keep its same form. Um, and there's similar inspirations can be found all over the world. So in Latin America, in um, Ecuador, there's the concept of buen vivir, which is very similar to gross national happiness, another kind of movement to change the goal of the economy from blind growth to the good life, buen vivir. Um, there's also the common good uh, initiative out of, um, out of Germany and Europe. There's the Happy Planet Index. In, in Wales, there's the Future Generations Wellbeing Act, um, which is about looking at the happiness of future generations as the goal of the Welsh economy. Um, there's the social prog progress indicator. So there's, there's many, there's the Happy City um, Project in Bristol, UK. So there's many different forms of this as well taking place all over the world. But I think, you know, if I, if I would have to look at some of the challenges, some of the, some of the challenges that I see and uh, some of the difficulties, because I think sometimes people think of uh, Bhutan and they think of it as like a Shangri-La or like a very like idealistic place. And then people can be quite surprised when they go there and 
find that not everything is totally perfect. Um, that that this really, I would say, is is an idea, and it was an idea birthed um, really from the top, from the king. Um, and there has been international effort and collective effort to try to figure out what this means for the for the economy and for the for the nation. Um, but you know, it's not. It, it's still in process. It's it's an ideal and then a practice, and it's still being kind of figured out. So, you know, I do I do see. You know, one of the big questions is um, GNH is a very comes from this Buddhist tradition. And so as it does spread, how does it keep its fidelity um, around the world, but also how does it morph and change to allow for cultural adaptation wherever people are adapting or using gross national happiness? Um, So I would say, and then I'll open it up for conversation and questions and want to hear more about what people are thinking and feeling I want to just share some kind of key insights, key insights from the movement of gross national happiness, things that, that I've found and that maybe for us to think about. So there's, there's that famous quote by Margaret Thatcher, there is no alternative. And I think that Bhutan, um, by that kind of that bravery and that clarity in that moment of that king and his kind of a desire to go to really take a different path, I think, is really showing that there there are potentials for alternatives in our economies around the world, both at a local and national scale. So, I would say that it, you know that Bhutan suggests to me that there are alternatives and there are other ways that we can form our economies. I would say that another gift of um, gross national happiness, as I mentioned, that's a key insight for me is how do our movements have both the elements of outer transition, so the systemic transition, and also that inner transition? How do we weave in that happiness for the individual, that contentment, that um, ease, that, you know, the mindfulness and, compa- mindfulness and compassion skills, but also how do we also weave out the, the systemic um, changes that also bring about greater collective happiness? So I think the, the, the GNH movement really does that. It brings in inner and outer transition and inner and outer focus into both. And then, you know, the other key, the other key insight from gross national happiness, as I mentioned, is, you know, really looking at what is happiness? What does it mean to each of us? What does it mean collectively? Um, and then how do we measure that? How do we put that new idea of happiness or that idea, that shared idea of happiness as our center goal or focus in our economies and at all levels. So both in our own life, um, but also in our organizations, in our businesses, in our, um, in our towns, in our, in our, you know, nations. Um, so, you know, I, I would love to hear from all of you what's coming up for you, what your, your comments are. I know a few of you have been to Bhutan. Um, also your, uh, kind of the connection to this question, this invitation to explore what would a gross national happiness movement look like here? So here in the Bay Area, what would it mean to start to to adapt this this new goal for the economy or these measurement tools, the policy screening tool and all of this? So I will open it up. You, There's the mic here. 
For anyone who has any kind of questions or comments or things you want to share. Thank you very much. Um, and I have a three-pronged question. One is, is the king still ruling today? Number two is, um, since we are all people, when people make mistakes there, what is the criminal justice system? And three, do you need an invitation to go there or can you get a visa or is it very complicated to get in? I think I heard you can only go there as a group, but I would like to be enlightened on that because I'm, I want to run home and find out more about it. But these are my first three questions. Okay. Uh, so to answer your first question about the king, um, it's actually a really fascinating story. So the king actually, uh, the, the country was a monarchy, and he was the king. Um, and then he decided that uh, to abdicate the throne and to hand, uh, hand the country over to the people. So actually turn the country into a democracy. Um, and many people say they actually did not want to have democracy. They loved the king. Um, and they did not fight for it. <laughs> they did not want it. Um, but it. But the king said... Um, in a, a very Buddhist way, it was just like, you know, y you may like me, and that's wonderful, and thank you, but you, you have no say, you, you know, you have no say over the future kings and their benevolence or goodness or whatever. And so democracy is the way to ensure that happiness for people on the planet remains is the goal, the goal, of, the goal of the economy. So he actually handed the country over to democracy and retired at age 51. So there is a, uh, there is still a king his son in kind of um, ceremonial um, ways, but you know, there's now a prime minister and it's now a democracy. Um, one interesting thing, though, that I've seen is because people really didn't want democracy, um, and now there's some interesting things that have happened, such as political parties have been born. Uh, so two neighbors who were once close, who now during an election are supporting different political parties and the kind of the tensions and conflicts that that's that happened as a result of that it's really fascinating to look at um so what happens when a country opens up to democracy in the bhutanese context there's a lot of interesting things but yes so no it there's a there a democracy criminal justice system i don't have any I, i couldn't speak to that question but what i could speak to is um i did see Uh, particularly in the education system, that because the country did open up in the 70s, there was this influx of kind of ways that other countries are doing things. And so there was this very Western idea of education where there were uh, uniforms and there was, um, they were hit with like rulers and like corporal punishment in the classroom and things like that. Like things that just really did not feel uh, very Buddhist in practice or very in line with gross national happiness, but were kind of, um, they thought that was how development worked in that way. So I say that because, um, as I said, they're really still trying to figure out what does gross national happiness mean in all areas of life, including criminal justice system, including education, including business. So I would say it's probably an ongoing discovery. And lastly, about tourism, uh, very fascinatingly, so note, you do not need an invitation to go to Bhutan. Um, but you do have to pay a tourist fee um, that is quite significant per day. 
And the reason for this is, well, one, to limit tourism. They do not want there to be a huge influx of tourists. But also because when you pay this fee, everything is covered for you. So your accommodation, uh, a tour guide that's your personal tour guide who speaks the language and guides you to appropriate uh, cultural um, ways. Um, so that was, uh, it, it's very, very special um, to get to go. It's very, very expensive. Um, there are group discounts, but when you do go, um, yeah, you're very well taken care of and uh, the tourism is guided in a very particular way, um, which you, you might be able to sense has some benefits because they're able to limit the tourism and they're also able to kind of, um, yeah, make sure that cultural traditions are respected, things like that. Thank you, Della. Um, so I know Della well because we did a pod she did a podcast uh, about my book, Buddhist Economics. And I went to Bhutan. And Bhutan, the people are incredibly beautiful, wonderful, and joyous. And, and I love the people. But Bhutan to me is a microcosm of human greed taking us down the wrong road. So... Here you are in this beautiful country, and in Timpu, the minute the professional class has any money, the first thing they want is a car, and they buy cheap diesel cars from India because it's what they can afford. And Bhutan just started in Timpu, the capital where I'm talking. They just started a public transportation system, oh, not that long ago. It's not very well developed. So most people, when I talk to people who didn't own cars, how do you get around? It's really hard. And the cars are gridlocked and causing horrible air pollution, and it really, it really causes suffering. And but that hasn't, they haven't really, uh, really addressed that kind of suffering. It's like they need to read Laudato Si, where Pope Paul says, and Pope Francis says, "Hey, whenever you drive your car, you're hurting the poorest people." And in Bhutan, that's really true, as well as people around the world. So to me, it was a great lesson in these contradictions of the minute people have enough money, they want to do, and as this is worldwide, they want to have a car and they want to eat meat. So in Bhutan, you're not allowed to kill animals, but in India, you are. So they import all kinds of really awful meat that's killed in India, um, the chicken, the fish, the whatever. I... I am a vegetarian, so I didn't eat it. But the people I asked about, they said, well, this is a lot of meat here, and it's not very good. But the Bhutanese love this meat, and it was everywhere I went. And on, when, when your guy takes you around, he makes sure there's lots of meat in the buffets. It's like, um, it's so these contradictions to me are a microcosm of how can we deal with this. Getting back to your question about how can we transfer to a Buddhist economy, which is what I spent a lot of time thinking about and teaching and then writing this book. And we can. We know how to do it. We know everything. Gross National Happiness is a wonderful guide to creating a Buddhist economy. But then we have to really bring the people along. So the one thing the king did that really disappointed me while, while I was there in Bhutan, he lowered the gas tax. 
he truly did. As an economist, I want to say, oh, no, just a second. If you had used your G&H principles, you would have never lowered the gas tax. You would have actually said, he said, I want to give you a gift, so I'm going to lower the gas taxes, which only helps the higher-income people. I wish he had said, to give you a gift, I'm going to take some extra money we're getting from the gas tax, and I'm going to really, really make public transportation dynamite. <laughs> like that, to me, and if he had applied GNH, he probably, or, or asked economists, he probably would have gotten that, but he didn't. So to me, I, I would love to have us talk more about this question of how do you create a Buddhist economy, and how do you move people along from wanting to own cars and eat meat as they get higher incomes? Because that's really critical. It's all about sort of how do we get rid of our greed? Thank you. Yeah, no, and I, I think, you know, this is why for me going to Bhutan was, was so powerful. And yet that kind of, for me, is the least important thing for me. It's more this kind of, this idea of gross national happiness, the process that they went through to cultivate this. And then these kind of, these questions that do bring in the tension like how can we address them and how can we address them differently wherever we do want to implement more um, you know, Buddhist economic principles or practices and where we do want to put happiness as the center goal. Um, and I think, I think what the, the most helpful thing that I'm seeing to address this uh, that you're talking about is that kind of bringing in uh, the concepts and the principles into uh, uh, education and so the practices of really starting very young and bringing in the mindfulness and compassion practices and that kind of the Buddhist principles against greed, hatred, and delusion as you're speaking to. Um, and doing it in a way that's, um, you know, not kind of forcing anything on, on the children, but the way that I've seen it they, that they do is they really ask the children, you know, what's important to them or what brings them happiness or what is their sense of aspiration in the world. So... If, if if they can kind of cultivate this at a young age, um, you know, potentially that could be helpful. Yeah. Do we have another hand over here? Um, I was in Bhutan uh, with my wife, Dr. Brown, there. And um, I just wanted you to know that Bhutan is the only country in the world where archery is the national sport. <laughs> so when you go there, and I hope you go there, um, make sure you... Go uh, have a look at an archery uh, range. There's one in every town. And the last thing is that these people shoot 160 yards. That's the national sport. All right, we'll just have one final comment or question. Go ahead. Well, this is actually a little off of the beaten track, but it's something that I think um, the Bay Area did, which was... um, which, which uh, gross national happiness is a part of, and that is the East Bay Regional Parks. When they set aside that land to be parks, that completely changed the, the future of, of our area. You know, if, we didn't, if, if that area was all open to development, the East Bay would be a, a very, very different place. And so I think that, that was an example of, of contributing to gross national happiness. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, thank you all for for exploring this with me, for taking a little trip to Bhutan to learn what they've <laughs> what they've pioneered there. Um, and I just, you know, before we go into the closing meta practice, just really 
invite us to see where this conversation takes you after tonight, where, where these kind of new ways of thinking about measurement or about what happiness is or what the goal of the economy is. Because um, I think that uh, with the strength of mindfulness and Buddhist practices here in the Bay Area, there's a real potential for bringing in um, also very real systemic analysis of suffering and how we can alleviate suffering here in the Bay Area and how we can bring our Buddhism even more off the cushion and into our politics and our economics and our systems. So that's just a continued invitation after this evening. So let's uh, end with our meta practice. So if you'd like to join me. We'll just take a, take a moment first to connect with ourselves and wish ourselves well. May I be happy. May I be healthy. May I be well. Just wishing yourself some loving kindness here this evening. That whatever your sense of happiness or ease is, flourishes, blossoms. And then that we we call to our hearts the happiness and well-being of all those in this room, all those who shared, all those who listened, those who you spoke with, those who you never saw or met. Just wishing everyone in this room happiness and health. May we be happy. May we be healthy. May we be well. And expanding our well wishes, our heart energy to those who may be here or not here to may all those that I named be happy, may they be well, may they be healthy. And then may we expand our our well wishes and our hearts to all those living beings in the world, all the four-legged, all the birds, all the fish, all the people all over the world, those who are dying, those who are being born, those who are in homes, those who are homeless. May all beings, may all beings be happy, be healthy, be well. Thank you all. And with this expanded sense of heart, may you all go well into the night. Hope to see you again. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.